called this inventory. This is the second installment. James chapter 2 is where we will begin. The big idea is assessing yourself and challenging yourself in the new year. All claims of faith are not legitimate, and all Christian living is not consistent with the expectation of God that is commensurate with that claim. You can say you're a Christian and not be a Christian. You can be a Christian and live in a contradiction, injuring yourself, but also the witness of the testimony of who God is and what God can do in a changed life. You become a barrier rather than a bridge to the good news. Tragedy, misleading yourself about what faith and saving Christianity involves. Tragedy number two, I misrepresented in a way that someone else is not interested in it. James is writing to a group of people in an effort to help them calibrate, and that's what I'm asking you to do. Take inventory. One to ten, how are you doing in these critical categories? And I remind you, chapter two, verse 12, so speak, By the way, 58 times in this book, James is going to use imperatives. He's a preacher. These are not options. These are exhortations. So speak and so act. So walking and talking as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. The law of God involves the prescriptive law of love, the royal law. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love God with all you've got, heart, soul, mind, and strength. Living out love is going to be the measuring stick. It not only produces liberty, this royal law of love, it is a release when you live it, but it is also a standard by which you assess yourself. And the aim that I uh, really wanted to encourage you to, to at the very beginning of the year is take inventory. The unexamined life is not worth living. Christians are to examine themselves. We have the privilege today of coming to the Lord's table. It's not just a joyful experience. It's a sobering one. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 says you don't partake in an unworthy manner. Unworthy means you don't rightly value the cost of what you're memorializing. You treat it lightly. It's unworthy to consider the work of Christ, the person of Christ, the gift of grace, lesser than it ought to be contemplated. Today is an opportunity to calibrate your heart in recognition that I've been loved to the uttermost. That what I'm receiving as a memorial is a reminder that I was dead and I'm alive, not through my work, but through the gracious gift of life given to me in the person of Jesus Christ. The other way you partake in an unworthy manner is you come to the table unwilling to address issues that are a contradiction to the memorial you're about to celebrate. You partake in an unworthy manner when you live like a Christian should not live while saying things like, I'm a Christian, I believe in Jesus Christ. Consequentially, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, some sleep, 
Some are sick. Sleep is a euphemism. They are dead, not breathing. As a consequence of their claiming and not living. Some are sick. Some are enduring real time in this life right now consequences because they do not calibrate according to the Word of God and the ways of God prescribed by His Spirit for our benefit. So when you come to the Lord's table, you come appreciating and you come examining. And let me tell you what you don't do. Pass the cup or the bread because you're not willing to deal with your issues. The goal isn't to pass it on and say, I'm better off not partaking. That would be true. But the goal isn't being better off because you didn't participate. The goal is better off to deal with the issue that prevents you from participating. To confess, even today, my life is incongruous with the claims I'm making with my lips. The Spirit of God has convicted me, whether it's through this short little epistle, whether it's through the work of the sermon that happens before we partake today. Something pricks your conscience. It's a gift to you. And it's the sorrow of God that produces a repentance without regret. And if it feels like God's talking to you, be grateful. And don't ignore that message of grace by His Spirit through His Word, the conviction of your heart. Deal with it. Don't pass the cup. Do what you need to partake from the cup. Can you say amen to that? This Sunday is a calibration Sunday. We have them about every five weeks or so. Take advantage of that. But I'm asking you to read through the book of James and recognize what Christians ought to look like. This morning, we are focused in James chapter 2. We are looking at the central priority of the biblical gospel, saving faith. Real faith works. This is the heart of the epistle of James. I think he would say it, saving and genuine faith is validated by observable works. Faith alone saves, solo fide, but faith that saves is never alone. This is a saving faith inventory. The faith that saves. So here's a question, do you have the faith that saves? An interesting encounter at Starbucks this morning. Brienne asked me, uh, are you going somewhere special? And I said, actually, I am. She said, where? I said, church. You go to church? Yes, I do. <laughs> it was interesting. I said, I actually teach the Bible at church. You do? As if she was shocked. And uh, I said, actually, I I do, and today I'm preaching and teaching on the faith that saves. What saving faith involves? There was no more to our conversation. (laughs) But I just thought, what a unique day. Get your venti pike, and you have an opportunity to express why this day is special. 
This is a special day. This is the Lord's day, and we're looking at the most important subject possible, the faith that saves. Do you have the faith that saves? Question number two, what gives you this confidence? Because you profess Christ? Because you believe the truth about Christ? Here's a sobering statement. It is not mine. It is Charles Haddon Spurgeon's statement. Nobody is saved simply because they know who Jesus is. And nobody is saved by believing Christ died for them. End quote. Does that unsettle any of you? Nobody is saved simply because they know who Jesus is, and nobody is saved by believing Christ died for them. So what is saving faith? And we argued last week, it is more than words faith. Saving faith is more than a confession or profession. It necessarily involves caring and practical, loving your neighbor actions. Real and saving faith changes how you treat people, or it's not saving faith. Verse 14, chapter 2, what use is it? My brethren, if someone says, in other words, they're professing it, that he has faith, but, adversative, on the other hand, he has no works, can that faith save him? The claim without the objective validation of the claim in this way. If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm, and be filled. In other words, you say things, you do not do things, and yet do not give them what is necessary for their body. What use is that? Even so, verse 17, faith, if it has no works, is dead. It's by itself. It has a claim. It is a profession. But the talk is bigger than the care in your walk. I said this last week. I want to repeat it. Saving faith involves necessarily repenting from sinful and self-interested attitudes and actions. It is more than religious professions and religious actions. It's not going through the religious activity It is necessarily displayed in charitable actions, other-centered living. That is what validates your faith. It is more than words, faith. What use is it? If it has no work, no use. Like a car with no engine, no use. Number two, verses 18 through 20. It is more than believing the facts, faith. Saving faith is more than intellectual agreement or assent. Saving faith is more than it's true and I believe it, faith. It is more than this is the truth and it's my conviction, faith. Faith that does not save is faith in the facts only, faith. Verse 18, but someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. In other words, both are valid. 
You've got the works. I've got the faith. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. In other words, your claim of having faith without validating evidence, there's no way to know whether you do or you don't. Because the claim alone does not validate the reality. You're saying you have faith doesn't mean you have it. And there's no way to validate it without evidence to support it. And he goes on to heighten that it's more than believing facts faith with this verse 19 statement. You believe that God is one. You do well. That's a good thing. But I want you to know that the demons also believe, and they shudder. Are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Claims without expression have no value. Saving faith necessarily involves God-honoring, God-loving actions, not just truth about God convictions. I'm going to tell you where I'm going before I go there. Saving faith necessarily involves God-honoring and God-loving actions, not just truth about God convictions. Real faith, listen to this, changes how you think about God and how you treat God. fact. Demons are orthodox. Devils believe all the facts of revelation. The faith that saves is not merely an historical faith, not a faith that simply believes a creed. It's not just a faith that believes the most important facts in the world like the devils do, the demons do. Listen, this is sobering. Demons have theology, and it's good theology. The demons know the truth about God. That's what the claim is in verse 19. You believe that God is one? It's the numeral one. You do well. One meaning you know there is only one of a kind God. God is one of a kind. Be like, how many gods are there? This many. The demons believe they're this many. The other factor housed in this Greek statement is not only there's one and only one, but this one is elevated above everything else. He's one of a kind and he's the first of priority. He's the foremost. This comes from the Shema of Deuteronomy chapter 6. It's rehearsed by Jesus in Mark chapter 12. What's the greatest commandment? I'll tell you what it is. It begins with, let me tell you about what we believe about our God. Our God is one. One of a kind. First and foremost of that kind. This is what demons acknowledge. God is God, and there isn't anybody else but Him, and He's the highest in rank and station. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, listen to how Paul would say it. He's talking about things offered to idols, 
And he says, we know that there's no such thing as an idol in the world. It's not that there aren't figures that represent false gods. All he's saying is those idols, those carvings, they don't represent anything. There's no such thing as an alternative God. He goes on to say, no such thing as an idol in the world and that there is no God but one. 1 Corinthians 8, 6, Yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for Him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through Him. Listen, if you were to demon convention and you were to make this claim, they would say, Amen. That's the truth. They would say, Amen, to the statement of Deuteronomy 4.35, The Lord, this is Yahweh, Yahweh is God, there is no others besides Him. All the demons would say, Amen, that's the truth. The Lord, Yahweh, is God in heaven above and on the earth below, Deuteronomy 4.39. There is no other. Isaiah 46.9, God talking, I am God. There is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times, things which had not been done. I'm God. My purpose shall be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. I call a bird of prey from the east. In other words, he's sovereign in his work and purpose. The man of my purpose from a far country. So it's a figure referencing a, a coming King, a man who's coming for a purpose with regard to the judgment of his people. Truly I have spoken. Truly I will bring it to pass. I have planned it. Surely I will do it. You know why? I'm God. I do what God does. And there's nobody else who can do what I do. And all the demons said, that's true. Amen. Jeremiah 10.6, there is none like you, O Lord. Jeremiah 10.7, there is none like you. The Shema, Deuteronomy 6.4, the Shema, you know the story of this. I think I've shared it with you. The Shema was a statement that was to be rehearsed every morning, every evening in the Jewish home. Every Jew would rehearse this claim that the Lord our God, the Lord is one. One of a kind, first in priority, elevated above all, nobody else but him, morning and evening. When I get up, when I go to bed, over every single door in my home, every door, door to my bedroom, door to the kitchen, door to the bathroom, would hang a a little leather pouch with the Shema. And when I saw it, it should calibrate me to recognize I serve the one and only God. He's first and foremost. And all the demons at the demon convention would agree to that. True faith begins here, this claim. You do well, you need to believe that, but it doesn't end there because saving faith is more than I believe in God. Are you a Christian? Yeah, I believe in God. Are you a Christian? Yeah, I believe Jesus Christ died on the cross for sinners. Demons believe that. I couldn't help it. 
but I went through my New Testament to see how much demon theology I could learn. Number two, demons believe that Jesus is God and worthy of submission. Jesus meets some demons in Mark chapter 3, verse 11, here called unclean spirits. And when they saw Jesus, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. They know who Jesus is, and they know that he's worthy of submission because they go down in recognition. They know who the historical Jesus of Nazareth was, and that God the Father sent him, and that he has the power to judge and destroy them. Listen to Luke 4.34, from a demon-possessed man in the synagogue. By the way, you can be demon-possessed and in the place where God gets worshipped. Here's what they say, this demon-possessed man. Let us alone. What have we to do with you? These are demons talking about Jesus. What do we have to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. Christologically, they are not confused about the historical Jesus from Nazareth. He is God in the flesh. He's the Son of God. Mark chapter 5, another demonized man, 5 through 7, in the mountains and in the tombs, crying out and cutting himself with stones because demonized people are self-destructive. They're tortured and in torment. When he saw Jesus, this demon-controlled man, when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and, get this, and he worshipped him. And he cried out with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High? I implore you by God that you do not torment me. Something else the demons do, they recognize the true preaching of the gospel. Here's a demon-possessed slave girl in Acts 16, possessed with the spirit of divination. The girl followed Paul and us, says the writer of Acts, and the demonically possessed girl cried out saying, these men are the servants of the Most High God, get this, who proclaim to us the way of salvation. They know the gospel. They know who Jesus is. They know Jesus is worthy of worship. They know that there is a consequence coming. They recognize false gospel and true gospel. (laughs) We all laugh at the Acts 19 story of the Jewish exorcist who tell the evil spirits, we exercise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches, which means not our Jesus, but his. They're pragmatic preachers. These are seven sons of Sceva. They have a high religious pedigree. They are sons of a Jewish high priest. (laughs) And the evil spirit in the person they were seeking to liberate by the power of Jesus, but not knowing Jesus as false teachers. The evil spirit said, Jesus I know, Paul I know, but who are you? 
Then the man in whom the evil spirit was, was leaped on them, overpowered them, prevailed against them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. A bad ministry day of a false teacher and the enemies of God recognizing they don't teach the truth. They don't have authority. True authority rests in Jesus and those commissioned by Jesus. Demon theology, they believe in hell as a place of punishment. Luke 8, 29 through 31, when Jesus had commanded the unclean spirit, the demon, to come out of the man because it had seized him often. He was kept under guard. He was bound with chains and shackles, and he broke the bonds. He was driven by the demon into the wilderness. Jesus inquired, what is your name? He said, Legion, because many demons had entered him. Now get this, verse 31, demon theology, what they believe. Not just that God is first, one of a kind. They begged him that he would not, Jesus, command them to go out into the abyss. You know what the abyss is. 2 Peter 2, 4, God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. Jude 6, one chapter, book of Jude, verse 6, and the angels who did not keep their own domain, those are demons, but abandoned their proper abode, which would be service to the one true God in heaven. They abandoned that. God has kept in eternal bonds under darkness. Where? In the abyss for judgment. Revelation 9, seven times the, word, the, the Bible in Revelation uses a reference to the abyss, the, the bottomless pit always referring to the prison where demonic hordes are incarcerated. Matter of fact, at the end, one of the judgments of God is the release of these demonic spirits, these fallen angels. Chapter 9, Revelation, the fifth angel sounded, I saw a star from heaven which had fallen to the earth in the key of the bottomless pit, that's the abyss, was given to him, and he, this angelic being with this authority, He opened the bottomless pit, smoke went up out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened by the smoke of the pit. Verse 11, they have as a king and they're released and they act like scorpions and they look like locusts. And I take that to mean this demonic horde has characteristics that are human and and, uh, consuming and there's just a very, very vivid illustration or picture of this demonic horde that's released to torment men, so much so that men want to die. They have tails like scorpions, verse 10, and it's, which stings, and in their tails is the power to hurt men for five months. Verse 11, Revelation 9, they have as a king over them the angel of the abyss. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon which is destruction, and in the Greek, he has the name Apollyon, which is destroyer. These are synonyms for the devil, the adversary, the dragon. Demons know there is a place of judgment and punishment, and they don't want to go there. They know that Jesus has the authority to send them there. 
They're very clear on the consequences of their condition. They're very clear on the authorization of the one before them, Jesus Christ, to commission them to that severe torment and punishment. It's into that place that the beast and the false prophet will be cast. It's into that place that, well, it's that place that will be cast ultimately into the lake of fire. It's like hell point one, and there will be lake of fire hell point two. They know that. They're clear on consequences. They're clear on justice. They're clear on judgment. They acknowledge Jesus as their ultimate judge. They beg Jesus not to torment them, and they bow down to Jesus. They believe there's a set time for punishment, Matthew 8, 28. Two demon-possessed men coming out of the tombs exceedingly fierce so that no one could pass that way. And suddenly they cry out saying to Jesus, demon-possessed men, what have we to do with you? Jesus, you son of God, have you come here to torment us before the time? Listen, your faith, you say you have it. You believe in God, that's good. You can believe in all of these things, and that's also good. You can know Jesus has authority over over you. You can be afraid of a future judgment. You can worship Jesus by bowing down in allegiance or submission, rather, to who he is, and not be saved. Demons know the truth. They manifest a consequence to what they believe. They shudder. They're not saved. They don't respond with love, adoration, and affection. The word here is tremble, shudder, is translated from an unusual Greek word, which means your hair is standing on end. It would describe one of two things, either how you respond when you are so afraid, you're terrified, and your hair stands up. It also can mean you are exercised and you are so energized out of hate for the one you are in the presence of. You're either afraid or hatred is so emotionally powerful and vitriolic in you. You just shudder. Demons believe. Now, just imagine this. And I I know I've taken some time. I just want to punctuate this because this is a church that, that values good theology. And you should. You do well. But you can know all the theological claims of Scripture and not be saved. And that should sober you. Imagine demons believe in the true identity, the authority, and the priority of God, and yet they are not saved. They react, but they don't react in a way that validates their faith and their belief as saving belief or faith. Let me bottom line this way. It is possible to truly believe these truths and yet not be saved. 
And that should sober you. Because nobody, going back to Spurgeon, is simply saved because they know who Jesus is or they believe what Jesus has done. Why? Because there is a believing that is not believing. Because true saving faith is more than knowing the facts faith. It is responding correctly to the facts faith. Of course you have to know who Jesus is. Of course you have to know the way of salvation. It's good to know that if I don't deal with God, I am in jeopardy of eternal torment. It is good to recognize He is the Holy One of God. There is no other. He's worthy of my submission. He's worthy of my worship. Everything about my life is in the balance of His sovereign rule. All good to know. But if not properly responded to, you are no better off than the demons who would say amen to all of the claims we just rehearsed. Turn over to John chapter 2 and let me give you some highlights of believing that is not believing. Jesus has been demonstrating his unique identity as the Son of God. He's doing the works that validate his words, supernatural works. And in John chapter 2, verse 23, after doing remarkable works, Verse 23, and when he, a reference to Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, so it's a packed house, Jerusalem, many believed in his name, observing his signs which he was doing. You know what signs are simply pointing to signals validating his identity. They saw the work. It was such compelling work, they believed in his name. Conclusion would be those people were saved because of the supernatural miracle working power of Jesus Christ undeniably validating his person. But you would be wrong. Because verse 24 goes on to say, Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them. Now the word belief in verse 23 is pistuo. It's the, it's faith, belief. Verse 24 has a prefix attached to faith, epipastuo, entrusting, believing in, committed to. Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them or committing himself to them, for he knew all men, and because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. So there's a divine diagnostic. The Son of God looks at the heart and he says, you know what? I'm not going to give them what they have not given me. I'm not entrusting myself to them. I'm not committing myself to them because what I know is they believe in my work. They recognize my identity. But here's the key statement. They have not given to me 
an entrusted, committed belief. Jesus is denying them what they had denied him. He did not entrust himself to them because they did not entrust themselves to him. They believed in who he was and what he could do, but they did not entrust themselves to him with a commitment of their life. Because saving faith is more than knowing the facts faith. Saving faith is I'm taking the facts that I know. I do believe in your name. I believe in who you are and what you can do. And I, keywords, and I am entrusting myself to you. I'm committing myself to you. Ellicott says they were easily moved, these would-be disciples, because they were not deeply moved. This just reveals that the faith that doesn't save is superficial faith. The faith that does save is the faith that acknowledges the right things and does something with those things, and that something is, I entrust myself to the Son of God who is able to do it and who is is worthy of my life and my worship. It is entrusting faith, not just, I believe you can faith. Saving faith is more than I believe this is the truth conviction. It also must be expressed in God-honoring and God-loving actions. Turn back with me to Deuteronomy chapter 6, and I just want to attach the rightful consequence to the declaration, I know you are God and you are first and foremost. Because saving faith treats God as he deserves and desires. It is not just that I believe the right things about God. I deal with the one who is God the right way. I give God what he deserves and desires as prescribed as a rightful response to the faith that acknowledges who he is. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, Hear, O Israel. So this is a, an imperative to tell everybody in the hearing of my voice, listen to me. The people that I'm with, Yahweh is our God. Yahweh is one. We already talked about it. One in number, first in priority. Sound familiar? Yes, it is. It should. Even the demons believe that. But the ones who can say, God is our God, follow that claim by these responses, validating responses. And you shall love Yahweh your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Saving faith acknowledges who God is, his uniqueness, his and his priority, and it responds rightly because that faith is an entrusting to him, and it's a responding rightly to him. It gives him what he deserves and desires. It's displayed in what? Loving. Honoring. All your heart. 
is an all-in resolution of commitment of your life. The heart is the decision-making center. It's the central dispatch unit for your life. Where you go, what you do, what you say, it would be your will. Love God with all your heart is a declaration that I am making a resolution in recognition of who He is that I am going to entrust myself and commit myself to Him in love. Saving faith affects the way you look at who God is and how you respond to who God is. And one of the validating evidences of those in the covenant group who say God is my God and it's a legitimate claim, they have an affection which reveals itself in a determined resolution, I am going to love you. I'm going to do a wedding on Thursday down in San Clemente. Unusual. It's an afternoon 3.30 wedding after a 4.30 rehearsal on Wednesday night. COVID pandemic, availability of the venue limited. A young man is going to say to a young woman, I promise. I'm going to leave my father and mother, previous trusted allies, place of affection and affirmation. I'm abandoning that. I'm going to cleave to you. I'm going to hold fast to you an unrivaled and exclusive loyalty. And I'm committing myself to becoming one soul expressed in one flesh living with you. It's no longer two people negotiating life. It's two people partnering in life. I promise before God. Because I'm going to ask him. Do you do this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? Because it's a covenant vow to each other before God as a witness. And bound up in that vow of promise is a resolution to say, I will love you. I will abandon all other potential loves. I'm cleaving exclusively to you. I promise. Until the first time we run into a challenge in our marriage, till the first time that we disagree, till the first time that you think this and I think that and they're not the same, until the first time the wind isn't blowing in our direction, until you're not what I had hoped you would be, I'm going to love you with an all-in resolution of my heart until. And everybody here would say, he's not saying that. You're not allowed to say that. And you know what? You aren't allowed to say that. Because when you get married, you are saying, I'm in for better or for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, until death do us part. With God as my witness, I give you my promise. Did you hear it? Does anybody think that's a uh, negotiable transaction? You shouldn't. And when you say, our God is Yahweh, He is one of a kind, He is like no other. 
I get who he is, I acknowledge who he is, and I respond rightly by giving, what he, giving him what is rightfully his, the resolution of a commitment of my heart that is for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer. I'm committed. You know what that is? That's entrusted faith. That's committed to God the way you need to be committed to God faith. All in resolution of your heart, all-out passion of your soul. Love God with all your heart, with all your soul. Soul is suke, it's breath. He's like life to me. Soul is where you feel. Soul is the passions of your life. Well, I'll tell you what saving faith shows up as. Your life to me, God. I have a passion to please you, a passion to know you. I have a determination to be faithful to you, but I have a passion to love and know you. It's zealous. Your life to me, God. This is life to me, faith. This is, I am all in. This is worthy of losing my life faith. Remember John chapter 12? Unless a kernel of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it cannot live. He who loses his life for my sake shall what? Find it. True Christianity that sees God, experiences God, possesses saving, entrusted, committed faith, has a passion for God that says, my life with you is more important than my life without you. It involves all your strength, all you've got. It's practical faith. Saving faith, let me bottom line, is treating God as he deserves and desires faith. It is not just, I believe the right things about God faith. It loves him. Saving faith accepts the identity and lordship of Jesus Christ. It recognizes fully who he is, and it depends exclusively on him and committed dependence and love. Or you can't claim it's saving. All right, let me read the rest of this and then we'll call it a day. James chapter 2. Because I'm going to give you an assignment. Because this is not the church of just hearing the word, it's the church of doing it. Because James chapter 2, 14 through 20, describes dead, useless for saving faith. It, in essence, says this is what saving faith is not. It's more than words. It's more than right beliefs or conviction. But now, in James chapter 2, 21 through 26, this is your assignment. You're going to shift to see what saving faith is by providing two compelling and radical examples of the faith that saves and how it works. Saving faith is manifested in the expression of practical and visible works of that faith. And in verses 21 through 26, James is going to illustrate this from polar opposite ends of the spectrum socially. He's going to speak about the most regarded person in the culture and the least regarded person in the culture. From the most revered Jewish forefather to the most despised Gentile sinner. 
from a respected Jewish leader to a pagan Gentile sex worker, from a man to a woman, from Abraham, who would be an example of the best of men, to these readers, and to Rahab, an example of the worst of humanity to these readers. Follow the words. Verse 20, are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? Bottom line, end of story, just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Works is the validating evidence of legitimate saving faith. Two big illustrations, top of the social chain, bottom of the social chain. What manifestation of saving faith, what validated their claim? That's your assignment. Assess and survey what are the validating evidences of saving faith found in these inspired and inspiring examples. Another way to say it, what is the conduct that justifies the claim, I have faith? So how many, no, you don't have to tell me how many of you will do that. I want you to do that. So that when we come together the next time and dig into this, you have a sense of why James chose these persons to illustrate the necessary evidence of a life that's been saved by faith because of the grace of God and the work of God. And it's just not thinking good theological thoughts as we talked about. And it shows up in the way you live and the choices you make. And all God's people said, amen. Well, partake worthily. Prepare your heart so that you can elevate him and you can deal with what's going on in the inside that's inconsistent with who he is and who you should be. Father, thank you for the morning. Thank you for James. Thank you for the challenge. Help us to not be foolish fellows, empty-headed Christian claimers who somehow believe that we can separate our claim from the way we live life. Help us to so speak and so act as those who will be judged by the perfect law of liberty. Lord, that's my prayer. And I hope that by your spirit, and maybe through the encouragement of a loving brother or sister and family member who will help us see what we have tended to overlook, that we have issues of the heart to address, and maybe the key issue of the heart, whether I'm saved. To that end, I ask it 
In Jesus' name, amen.